The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it is summertime, and that means the living is easy, hopefully, and it means the traveling fever is high. School's out, the water's warm, it's time to embrace the thrill of rubber hitting the road, the train wheels clacking down the tracks, and liftoff. Or, if you're my cousin, traveling a thousand miles through China on a unicycle. But that might be getting a little too specific. The point is, it's a good season for getting around. And lots of people are headed for the sites. Rome and Greece, maybe, or the pyramids and the Great Wall. Two cities, like London and Paris. There's probably a tale to be told in there somewhere. Mountains and the beaches, oceans and lakes, countryside and culture. And for book lovers, ahem, perhaps you are one of those. And before you think I've been spying on you as if you've been outed by big data and the great cyberstock, I'll note that the only thing I know about you, dear listener, is that you've clicked on a podcast called The History of Literature. And so let's say that lover of books is a pretty good bet. For lovers of books and reading and literature and life, a summertime trip might come with a little cultural overlay. No doubt you have books in your bag or loaded onto your device. Maybe you're planning some coffeehouse mornings. Maybe you've coordinated your lit in your locale. I'll read some early Nabokov on this trip to Berlin or crack open Kierkegaard while on my Copenhagen caper. I've done all this, pairing book and surroundings like a well-tailored suit, or you can break them into separates. A cozy mystery set in someone's parlor might be just the thing for that trip to the Himalayas. George Eliot in Tokyo? Well, why not? One of my favorite little books, which I think Mike and I discovered together once upon a time, is called Literary Cafes of Paris by Noel Riley Fitch. It provides a kind of checklist for those looking to soak up some atmosphere of glorious days gone by. If you're planning to have breakfast anyway, or if coffee is one of your greatest pleasures in life, or you want to have a nice luncheon in a Parisian cafe, why not position yourself somewhere where you can look at the walls and the tables and chairs and think, this is the place. This is where Jean-Paul and Simone discuss the affairs of the day, including their own. Why not walk the streets of your favorite author or literary character, seeing what they saw, feeling perhaps what they felt? And so, in that spirit, for travelers or for armchair travelers who want to remember a city better or who are looking forward to a trip someday or who just love a particular place, We have for you one of the great literary cities in the world, Dublin, Ireland. And we have a guest who's written a book to celebrate that city and its writers. Dublin, Ireland with Chris Morash today on the History of Literature. Okay, hello, hello, hi, here we go. Welcome to the History of Literature. I'm your host, Jack Wilson, looking forward to bringing you a good discussion today and some more good 
discussions in the future. I can't get too far away from Italy. You know that. I get that itch. And so I've been deep in the works of Giorgio Vasari, one of my longtime favorites. We'll have an episode on him and his achievement soon. And we will have a look at fairy tales coming up and a Persian prince, an archetype that has traveled through the centuries. And how about a look at comics with an expert on comics and an august visit from the old... Did I say august? An august visit? From the august old master himself, Mr. Henry James. Great stuff. And before we get to Dublin, we have a sneak preview for you. We're going to be talking to Shinyi Pai next week about her podcast, 10,000 Things, which looks at the modern-day artifacts of Asian American life. Shinyi is one of those artistic dynamos who... In addition to being a podcast host, is also a poet and filmmaker and museolo- muse- sorry, museologist, as in museums, an artist, let us say. And let's let that umbrella-like term cover who she is and what she does. She's currently the official civic poet of Seattle. She'll be here for a full conversation about her life and works and her new project, the podcast, but as part of our conversation, she read one of her poems, which I'm going to include here as a kind of preview. And then we'll have Chris Morash to tell us all about Dublin, and because I am a giving sort of guy, why don't we wrap things up with a My Last Book as well. John Higgs, our friend of the show, who's been here twice, once for William Blake and once for James Bond, and the Beatles. We'll hear which book this eclectic reader and author would like to read as his last book ever. All that after Shin Yi Pai. Okay, we're joined now by Shin Yi Pai, who is the producer, writer, and host of the podcast 10,000 Things. She's also a poet, the author of 11 books and counting, and she's currently the civic poet of Seattle. Shin Yi's going to share with us one of her poems today. Shin Yi? I'm going to read a poem to you called Virga, which is the title poem of my book, Virga, which came out uh, from Empty Bowl Books in 2021. And a verga is a dry thunderstorm. So it's a weather phenomenon that's common in places like rural New Mexico. And it's basically this idea of rain that never reaches ground. And so that, for me, in this poem becomes a kind of a symbol of um, human potentiality and becoming. So this is called verga. As young people, we are taught to hold our tears the feeling that could not come to pass in the thundering fall streak. In piercing through Virga, we risk the jet plane flaming out, shafts of rain going sublime before ever touching ground. If this is dormancy, the self unrequited, who would we be if we became cloudburst? Consider the potted plant in the crook, whose roots could grow no deeper, its refusal to bloom and choosing instead to shrivel the lesson now to pour down and resound. Mm, Shinyi Pai, host of the podcast 10,000 Things. Shinyi, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It was my pleasure. 
That was Shingy Pai reading her poetry for us. We will hear more from her next week, I think. And now we travel to Dublin and Chris Morash. But first, let's take a quick break to catch our breath. The plane has boarded. The doors are closed. We've taxied down the runway and the engines are in a low hum. A quick little minute or two before they roar into place. You close your eyes in anticipation. Before you know it, you'll be landed on the Emerald Isle, land of saints and scholars, journeying to the bricks and stones of Yeats and Heaney and Shaw and so many others, including and especially Mr. James Joyce, the exile from Dublin who never really left. Chris Morish, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Chris Morash, who has published widely on Ireland and its literature and culture. He's also collaborated with the Abbey Theatre and chairs the judging panel for the Dublin Literary Award. He's here today to discuss his book, Dublin, A Writer's City, which he wrote for the Imagining Cities series, which he edits. Chris Morash, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks very much, Jack. Great to be here. So I first visited Dublin at the perfect moment in life. I had just read Dubliners and Portrait of the Artist and Ulysses, and I was reading Beckett and Yeats and, and Oscar Wilde. I was in my early 20s and traveling everywhere I could, and I found Dublin to just be intoxicating, to breathe in that literary air. So I can't wait to explore all this with you. That's exactly what happened to me. I, mm. mean, I, I, I came to Dublin in 1985 in my early 20s, intending to stay for a year. And it was exactly the same thing happened with me. I was coming here to study Irish writing. Um, and I realized, you know, I was going to be staying in the house that was two doors down from where Oscar Wilde had been born. Oh. Um, a street that features prominently in Ulysses, just down the road from Sweeney's chemist shop where uh, Bloom buys Molly Bloom lemon soap um, around the corner from a pub that features in one of Beckett's short stories. 
and around the other corner from the place where the first production of the Irish Literary Theatre took place. And I thought, yeah, this is where I belong. Hmm. It almost sounds, when you describe it like that, and I, I had that feeling as well. I went on some some literary pub crawls and so on, and it, it almost feels like you're walking through uh, Universal Movie Studios or something, that it, you just, everything is so close. You just turn the corner and, oh, this is this is the setting for that story, and this is the setting for that novel. I think that's one of the things that makes Dublin quite distinctive is that sense of proximity. Uh, the city center in particular is quite compact, and even as you move outwards from the city centre, Dublin is almost like a, a series of, of connected villages. So, you know, it is a city where you walk still. It's increasingly a cycling city. So there is that sense that there's a density, there's a kind of literary density in the city mm. um, that you find in very few other places, really. Yeah. So you start the series with what you call a simple recognition, the city you know best, Dublin, is a place in which there is more than meets the eye. So what's on the surface of Dublin and what lies underneath? Yeah, I mean, Dublin is Dublin's a kind of deceptive city. Not everybody gets Dublin, say, in the way you did when you, when you first arrived there. It's a city that, you know, it's not a spectacular city in lots of ways. It's not, mm. nobody's going to mistake it for Paris or mm. Singapore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's some nice buildings, but it doesn't have that kind of, visual um, grandeur, you know, it doesn't grab you the way, you know, standing on a bridge over the Seine, just you think, wow. And you don't have to know anything about Paris to just, you know, look down the Seine and be blown away. Right, by, right. Or you know, Rome. By the view. Yeah, right. Or Rome, Rome, the same way. You can just, you know, walk around and the Coliseum is there and whatever. Dublin, a lot of Dublin is quite low rise mm-hmm. because the city had prolonged periods of economic underdevelopment. And by prolonged, I mean really from the end of the 18th century right up until about 20 years ago. There are a lot of buildings still here from earlier periods. So, you know, the the writer Elizabeth Bowen once said that one of the features of Dublin is a kind of emotional memory, Mm. a sense of past and present being, you know, side by side. And in a sense, that's partly because buildings didn't get torn down and new ones put in their place, yeah. you know, with, in, with the same kind of speed that happens in, you know, in, in lots of other cities. So I think, you know, if you just look around Dublin and you didn't know very much about it, you hadn't read Dubliners, you could be underwhelmed by it as a city, I think. Yeah. Right. And emotional memory, what a great phrase. And for so many of the writers, I'm kind of jumping ahead here a little bit, but for so many writers, it seems like, you know, they had this relationship with it where they they live in Dublin, they leave, and then they their heart is still there. I mean, Joyce is, is spending his writing career in other places, but rebuilding Dublin brick by brick in his prose. That's right. That's yeah. right. I mean, you know, Joyce, Joyce famously said, you know, if Dublin were destroyed, if it could be rebuilt from Ulysses. And, um, you know, he, he's not he's not too far wrong, you know. <laughs> um, there is certainly that sense that, that Dublin kind of gets a hold of writers' imaginations. And I think that's partly because there is such a kind of strong sense of place there. There's such a strong sense yeah. that uh, every corner has a story. Um, that, that that there's a kind of density of association. And I think when writers like Joyce and, and to some extent even you know, Beckett and others leave Ireland, 
they're, they're kind of drawn back in memory. Because what they're doing is they're drawing on that emotional memory as a kind of literary resource. Mm. In some mm-hmm. ways, in some ways, that emotional memory is, I think, for a lot of Irish writers, it's the kind of the secret weapon. It's the thing that they can mobilize that writers in other places can't always to the same degree. Yeah. And part of it is all of the memories that we often have, youthful memories, which are always so formative and important. But but also it seems like there's something about Dublin that imposes itself on people in a deeper way, even with maybe, I don't know if that comes from the institutions or uh, the the characters of the people or the politics, but it seems like it's also, you know, this is the place where I... I learned what life was all about, or this is a place where I was afraid or where I was figuring out who I was because of the forces that were arrayed against me. I think that's probably true. And I think, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't think there's any one single reason. I think part of it does go back to scale. That Dublin, certainly sort of the center of Dublin in any case, has a kind of imaginable scale. So you can picture it on a human scale. I think the other thing about Dublin, and this is sort of not often, I think, remarked upon, a lot of the writers that we associate with Dublin actually are from the country. Mm. You know, that um, a lot of the writers we associate with rural Ireland are actually from Dublin. You know, a, a writer like, you know, a playwright like John Millington Singh, writes Riders and Sea, Playboy the Western World, is born in the suburbs of Dublin. You know, conversely, a poet like Seamus Heaney, one of the great poets of rural life, lived for the second half of his life in Dublin. Right. So it's a city that has a very close contact with rural life. And I think that kind of density of human interaction that you get in a village or in a kind of rural area, I think that gets transferred to the city in a funny way. Mm. And that produces that kind of emotional density, that that sense of you rarely get in Dublin writers. And this is kind of unusual. You rarely get that sense of being alone in the city. You think of how much yeah. writing about cities is about people feeling kind of atomized. Yeah. Feeling, you know, here I am alienation here i am alone in my apartment you know, on the 57th floor and you know i i don't know anybody you don't get that in dublin writers in fact if anything you get the opposite mm. you get that sort of almost claustrophobic sense that everybody knows who you are yeah you, you know you can't go for a walk <laughs> down the street without running into somebody you know and that's still to some extent you know true of dublin i mean there still is that sense that, you know, the place you go for a walk and you're, you're going to run into somebody you know. Yeah. Like when I lived in New York, my wife and I were very pleased to see that we had a kind of anonymity there. And yet it almost made things seem more friendly in a way because you would just go out and you would have these encounters on the sidewalk and there was no expectation that you would ever see that person again. And so you could smile and wave or, you know, do a bit of kindness of help someone across the street or something like that. And there was no feeling of, oh, does this, is this going to be unwelcome? Is this going to turn into a relationship I don't really want to have or anything like that? It was just, we were all just anonymous people to one another. And 
I never felt yeah. that way when I was visiting Dublin because I think because of that in New York, a visitor can kind of feel at home because everybody is kind of a visitor in a sense. But in Dublin, I felt like, boy, I would really need to live like I am just a visitor. I would need to really live here and and see the same people at the pub every afternoon or have family here or it would be hard. It would take a long time for me to feel like I was one of the Dubliners. I think that's obviously right. I mean, you know, so many of you know the American narratives of moving to the city are of exactly that of of, of being in a place where nobody knows you, so you can reinvent yourself. Yeah, you know, it's right. The, you know, the Andy Warhol narrative. You know, yeah, move to New York and become somebody <laughs> right. else. That's right. the extreme version. But uh, whereas in Dublin, it's it's kind of the opposite. Mm. You know, that you, you move into the city and before long, you actually know quite a few people and quite a few people know you. I mean, the epitome of that in terms of Irish writers would be the poet Patrick Kavanagh, who grows up on a very small farm in County Monaghan, initially starts writing kind of rural poetry about his about the farm, but becomes immersed in the pub culture, in the literary culture, um, ends up getting into ferocious rows, including a legal case with Brendan Behan, and becomes just kind of feature of Dublin life that, you know, in the 1940s and 50s, if you were in certain streets and certain pubs around Dublin, you saw Patrick Kavanagh, you know, mm. to the extent that he becomes a character in other people's writing. Um, there's a lovely short story by the writer John McGahern called Bank Holiday, where he, the, the, the narrator of the story is introducing an, an American woman to Dublin to what he calls the standing army of 10,000 poets. And <laughs> they're in a pub. And in comes this character quite clearly based on Kavanaugh, you know, drunk, looking for somebody to buy him cigarettes, um, you know, and larger than life. And, and, and that, was, that was kind of Kavanaugh's persona. Yeah. So, you know, there was somebody moved from the country and more or less treated the city like a large village. And I think that characteristic continues. And I think once it's, once that happens, once you start to get writers using the city in that way, the city becomes available for other generations of writers, more recent generations. Right. To what do you attribute this relationship with literature? I mean, it could be could be music or I suppose painting or it could be pride in industry. And I'm sure there's some elements of all of that. But Dublin has such a special relationship with literature and language and and storytelling. And are you able to trace it back to any institutions, the church or the educational system or where does it come from? work in a university, Trinity College Dublin, I'd like to say it's the educational system, <laughs> um, but it's probably most often in defiance of all of the above, really. Yeah. A lot of the writers who either went through the educational system, Joyce going to University College Dublin, Flann O'Brien going to University College Dublin, almost in defiance of their education, Yates didn't go to university. Yeah. Uh, the church, there's a long period where Irish writing is really finding itself against the church, the yeah. Catholic church in lots of ways and the dominance of the Catholic church. It's none of those things. Um, there's a period, certainly, when writing, Irish writing is seen as being in opposition to British rule in Ireland. Mm. I mean, mm -hmm. that there are certainly writers who see it as a national um, agenda. And, and that certainly drives a lot of things. But the most interesting writers have quite an ambiguous relationship to that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Joyce's relationship to Irish nationalism is, is a complex one. Yeats, 
who, you know, will wrap the flag around itself when it suits them, you know, late in life said, you know, I am only a nationalist in Ireland and for specific purposes. Mm-hmm. You know, he was quite strategic about how he used that relationship. I think one of the things that happens, and I think this this is something we could say, is that you know, there's a sense in which writing begats writing. That mm. the knowledge, if you're a writer in Dublin today, if you're a young writer, you know that you're in the city of Joyce. You know, you know that you're in the city of right. Yeats. You know that you're in the city that Heaney lived in until he passed away there in 2013. So there are writers like, you know, Anne Enright, for instance, or John Banville, um, or, or Roddy Doyle, you know, all three of whom have won the Booker Prize, you know, who live in Dublin today and are not necessarily, you know, you're, you're not going to find traces of Joyce or Yeats or Beckett in their work in, in any obvious way. But the sense that you can be a writer in Dublin and you can use the city in particular ways, mm-hmm. I think that enables them in lots of ways. And I think that it's not a strange thing to be in Dublin, a writer. Right. And there's a kind of pride and a kind of national pride. And, you know, that we're we're basically outsiders where we've got this this British empire to the to the east of us. But we we have our thing and our thing is a flourishing literary culture. We can tap into that. I think that's right. Yeah. It's not an unusual thing to be a writer in Dublin. You know, it's taken seriously. Mm-hmm. You, and you know you have a readership. And you know you have a readership who will pick up the subtler nuances of what you're doing. You know, a writer like Anne Enright uses the topography of the city in very, very finely tuned ways. Um, I, I had a conversation with her there at one point just before Christmas on the book she was working on. And she had to, she had to move a character around the corner in the draft. And she said, you know, it's doing my head in. And she was moving the character maybe 50 yards. But the, <laughs> one street or another meant something very different to her. Oh, and when you right. read her work, she, you know, she has a very finely tuned sense of an older suburb versus a newer suburb, uh, an old kind of inner city working class community as opposed to a kind of mid-20th century working class community as opposed to a kind of middle class suburb on the coast. And she uses those elements almost like characters. And and you're not really aware of them unless you go looking for them. And then you realize this is all done very, very precisely. Yeah, right. When you say writers beget other writers, there's probably also something to do with the parents as well. That in a lot of places, parents might discourage their children from becoming writers in a sort of, well, how is that going to pay the bills? And isn't it time you grow out of this desire to write poetry and so on? And I'm guessing that in Ireland, with people reading and and the way they revere some of the authors in their own past and their own contemporaries and so on, that they maybe take a bit more pride and say, that's a fine vocation for you to pursue. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, there's a young friend of mine in his 20s, Declan Toohey, just published his first novel and you know, his parents are come from an ordinary sort of background and they're perfectly happy that he's become a novelist. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's not odd. It's not anomalous. Yeah. Um, I think there's also the other thing that's there, um, the great sort of elephant in the room, if you're writing about Dublin, is Ulysses. Mm. And that Joyce just <laughs> uses the city in so many ways. Right, in right. Such complex ways. That as a writer, if you think, well, look, am I ever going to 
exhaust the city? Am I ever going to be run out of material? You just read Ulysses and you realize there are so many ways in which a relatively ordinary streetscape, and this goes back to what we, we talked about earlier, that the ordinary, you know, a street with brick buildings, four or five stories high, a couple of shop fronts, you just look at it and it might look like the most ordinary street in the world. Joyce can transform that into something that, you know, people come from all over the world to see that street, hmm. to buy a cake of lemon soap in the chemist shop at the top of Westland Row. Yeah. To see where the house was, even if it's now torn down, that Leopold Bloom lives in, to go to the Martello Tower. These completely ordinary sort of places. Right. And I think Joyce's, one of Joyce's great gifts to subsequent generations of writers is that the ordinary parts of the city can be the material for literature. Mm. And I think that's something like, something that a writer like, say, Roddy Doyle has picked up. You know, Roddy Doyle won the, the, the Booker Prize you know, for Patty Clark. Ha, ha, ha. Mm-hmm. Roddy Doyle comes from one of the suburbs of Dublin, a place called Kilbarrick, which was basically built in the late 1950s, early 1960s. It was fields and farms before that. So it's not a place with a kind of deep literary memory. But Doyle, I think one of the things he would have learned from reading Joyce and other things is that even somewhere like that, which may be the most ordinary looking suburb in the world, can be a site for writing, can mm. be a site for imagination. Mm-hmm. So his Barrytown books, you know, the, the, the Commitments, The Van, The Snapper, Paddy Clark, ha ha ha, you know, and he's followed it right up to more recent one, The Guts in 2013, which follows the characters in the earlier novels into kind of late middle age. It's like the way in which said William Faulkner would imagine a whole county in Mississippi. Yeah. He's taken a completely ordinary suburb and given us this kind of multi-generational portrait of it. And now you go to go to you know you go to Kilbarrick, you just look at it. Yeah, it looks like an ordinary enough place, but it lives in the imagination. Yeah, and we give credit to Joyce for that. You did it with the physicality and the streets and so on. But even in Dubliners, I mean, he's saying you can write about just the people you know. These are these aren't kings and queens, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> these are right. these are the people who live in this city, literally. That's right. And I think Dublin's always been a city that has appreciated character. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, that you could maybe hypothesize that that goes back to the fact of, you know, quite a few years of economic underdevelopment when there were years where a lot of the population had not a lot else other than character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and that's, that's certainly true say, in the work of a playwright like Sean O'Casey, who writes about the characters who lived in the tenements of the north inner city of Dublin, yeah. you know, in, in what were some of the worst slums in Europe. I mean, really appalling uh, conditions, these old Georgian houses that had broken up into small flats where you'd have a family living in one room and a family living in another room. And many of sometimes over 100 people living in one house with a pump in the yard and a toilet in the yard. So you had people who had very little, but what they had was personality, Mm. they had language, um, and they had a sense of community. And so a play like The Plow and the Stars, or The Shadow of the Gunman, or Gino and the Paycock, you know, when you're looking at these characters, these are characters who don't, they don't own anything really, other than who they are. Mm -hmm. So they hold on to that and they value that. 
Yeah. And the writer is saying there's dignity here. There's nobility. There's a lot of life being lived among these people that everyone else is overlooking. But there's there's humor, there's pathos, there's the stuff that literature is made of. That's right. That's right. And once a writer recognizes that, that becomes available for subsequent generations of writers. Mm, so right. a contemporary poet poet like Paula Meehan, for instance, Paula Meehan was born in the north inner city, later moved to the suburbs, but she would have recognized, she would have grown up in the streets that Sean O'Casey wrote about. So her poetry can return in imagination to that place she grew up in and see the dignity in those lives, in mm. part because of somebody like O'Casey and other writers who saw the dignity in those lives. Right. And I think if we ask, you know, what good does literature do in the world? Maybe that's one of the things it does, that it allows us to see the dignity in the lives of others. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more. And in particular, I want to ask you about the book, Dublin, A Writer's City. Okay, we're back. Chris, how is your book, Dublin, A Writer's City, organized? Uh, well, it's organized spatially rather than historically. Mm -hmm. I mean, the obvious way to have done a book like this would have been to march through the decades um, or the centuries, as the case may be. I don't think that's how we experience cities. I think we experience cities by areas, by space. Right. So, for instance... If I go to what the area is known as Liberties in Dublin, which is the old medieval part of the city, it's where, it's where Dublin started, it's where the first Viking settlement was. I know, for instance, that Jonathan Swift was, was the dean of St. Patrick's there, hmm. and that if, where he wrote the famous piece of satire, A Modest Proposal. Students all over the world, when they're learning what satire is, they read A Modest Proposal, yeah. this pamphlet, which seems to be advocating that the best way to deal with poverty is to eat the children of the poor. Right. Now, he's not actually advocating that, but that's the satire. That was written in response to the situation of the people who lived around that area, St. Patrick's. Okay, so he writes that in 1729. I also know that there's a poet from the middle of the 19th century, James Clarence Mangan, who had through multiple addiction issues, opium, alcohol, but wrote some really incredible poetry based in that part of the city in the 19th century, 100 years later. There are also some great Victorian ghost stories in that part of the city. Or I can jump ahead to the present and a crime novelist like Tana French mm. has a couple of novels, one in particular, Faithful Place, set in those same streets. Now, if I'm walking past St. Patrick's Cathedral, I'm simultaneously aware of Swift and Mangan and Tana French and a multitude of other writers, all of whom have written about that part of the city. So the book's organized in 11 chapters, each of which deals with a kind of, with an area, with a, mm. what you might call it, a kind of emotional zone. And they don't necessarily correspond to, you know, areas to, you know, to parishes or electoral districts on maps, but they correspond to the way in which those parts of the city feel. 
Right. So if you're you're in that area, say around the liberties, you know you're there. Yeah. And there is that sense of of, of a really old past there. What are the different fields that they have? Well, the, the, the area I've just been mentioning is the Liberties, for instance, because it's the oldest, it's all, almost always associated in literature with an old past that's going to come back and bite you. Oh, yeah. You know, that it's the kind of place that crime novelists use right. if they want to set a, a narrative that involves something that happened, you know, way back in the past. Yeah, a buried scandal or the buried crime. Past. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Or poet Seamus Heaney, for instance, writes um, a series of poems set in that area about archaeological excavations. And he writes these poems in the 1970s at the time of conflict in Northern Ireland, using that sense of the past coming back to bite you as a kind of metaphor for looking at the conflict in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. So that'd be the liberties. Move to somewhere completely different. Um, the South Coast, Dublin has a, a situated on a bay. There's there's a lot of coast. Quite often, the literature set on that south coast is about a sense of revelation. Um, in Joyce's Ulysses, the character of Stephen Dedalus walks out onto the beach when the tide goes out in Dublin Bay. There are these great expanses of sand. And he asks himself, am I walking into eternity on Sandy Mount Strand? Mm. Seamus Heaney lived just off Sandy Mount Strand for about 40 years. And he has a series of poems where he talks about ch- changing what he does as a poet and no longer feeling that compulsion to engage directly with the political, to find his own way. And he does that by using the strand and the kind of openness of the sea as, as a kind of image for that. Samuel Beckett writes in his play, Crap's Last Tape. He sets a key moment in that play at the end of the pier in Dunleary, which goes right out into Dublin Bay, where the character has this kind of moment of revelation that, you know, the darkness I tried to keep my under is in fact my best friend. And there's three works by two Nobel laureates and Joyce, one who should have been, and all dealing with a kind of sense of epiphany or revelation that's based along that coast. So I think there's a kind of, it's almost like writers sense a kind of emotional temperature in a particular part of the city. And they draw on that. Um, and of course they draw on one another as well. You know, that Heaney is quite clearly drawing on Joyce. He actually includes Joyce as a character in some of those poems. Um, so they're writing to one another, but they're also drawing on some atmosphere in the place as well. Mm. Do you feel like the writers are all pretty consistent in how they view Dublin and how they view these areas. Do you see, uh, it sounds like there are certainly a lot of common themes, but are any going against the grain, so to speak, where you read their version of Dublin and think, oh, here's, this is different. This is someone who sees Dublin in a completely different way from what I'm used to seeing. Um, yeah, there's, you do find that. I mean, that, that South Coast, for instance, is also the, it's an area of the city that saw one of the biggest property booms over the past 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there are writers like, for instance, Kevin Power has a wonderful novel called Bad Day at Black Rock, which is based on a, on a true incident in which a young man was, was beaten to death, a young man from a quite a well-off family in a private school 
from that area. I mean, he, Black Rock is, is one of the communities along the coast there. So, I mean, Kevin's view of that area would be very much, um, it's the area that is the kind of locus of where a lot of money kind of concentrated in a very rapid period mm. in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And it's, you know, it's the kind of bonfire, the vanities area for him. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's a, gen- there's a gentler version of that in Mae Vinci's writing as well. I mean, Mae Vinci lived in Docky, which is on that south coast. And it's surprising, you know, under her sort of gentle exterior, how much of her work is about property. You know, so there's, there certainly are, there are cross currents, and it's the cross currents that are fascinating. Yeah. So you wrote that, I was fascinated by this, and I, <laughs> I need to ask you about this. So you wrote that one way to understand the importance of literature in Dublin is to imagine the city without literature. And I'm curious, you are clearly so steeped in, in the books and the writers and the connection with the place. What happens when you do that? What vision does that bring to your mind? Well, I mean, I wrote the book in kind of strange circumstances. I I live about 20 kilometers outside of Dublin. So, you know, the study where I work looks out over to a field that usually has cows in it. Mm. Um, And I had pictured myself writing this book, you know, in the dome of the National Library in the absolute center of Dublin and kind of walking the streets. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, this was the spring of 2020. And then Mm. COVID came along. So like a more modest version of Joyce writing Ulysses in Trieste in Paris, I I was writing it, you know, in exile. Right. And there were images coming out of the city center of Dublin of this empty city. And I think any of us who lived in cities anywhere had those same kinds of really spooky images. Oh, depopulated. Yeah, right. Depopulated. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was something we all knew, but didn't really understand in that kind of visceral level uh, that a city isn't just you know brick and stones and mm-hmm. glass and steel and tarmac a city is its people that when you take the people out of the city it's nothing it's just a shell it's a husk and i suppose when i think about the, the citizens of dublin i don't just think of the living or even the living and the dead i think of the living and the dead and the imaginary Hmm. And I think it became possible during COVID to imagine what this, you could see what the city looked like without the living. It became possible to imagine it without the imaginary as well. And you realized, you know, there's not a lot left when you take away the people, when you take away the the, the characters. Right. I mean, I, I have this very vivid sense of, of, of the characters in Dublin. There's a traffic island, a little place where I cross the road where I go to Trinity every, every day when I go to work. And that traffic island has a statue of the poet Thomas More. There's a poem by the poet Patrick Kavanagh satirizing the traffic island. Leopold Bloom passes by it in Ulysses. Two of the characters in another story of Joyce's from Dubliners, Two Glance, also pass by that. The main character in Flan O'Brien's At Swim Two Birds also passes by the statue and remarks upon it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a more recent novel by a novelist named Katrina Lally um, called Eggshells, where the character um, hypothesizes that this that there used to be a public urinal under the statue, that this might be a, a, a sacred well that could lead her to another world. Um, so, and, and there's a character in one of Beckett's stories who starts from the statue of Thomas More to go off on a little expedition to find a pub. Now, when I'm standing at that traffic island, it's very crowded. 
because there's Beckett's character, Balakwa. There's Joyce's um, Leopold Bloom. There are the other two characters in Joyce. There's Katrina Lally's character. There's, you know, there's, there's Patrick Kavanaugh. There's Thomas More himself. They're all there. And I, you know, I can imagine them there. So I think what happens is when you come to know the literature in the city, it's almost like there's a kind of second invisible population mm-hmm. populated by fictional characters and, and, and writers as public figures, as kind of almost public persona. Yeah, uh, That is a feature of Dublin. There were writers who were very much public characters, you know, figures like Brendan Behan, Flann O'Brien, Patrick Kavanagh, who, you know, congregated in certain literary pubs, um, actually wrote for newspapers as well. So there were, you know, readers who wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as kind of literary readers who knew who the writers were. Right. Um, so the idea of kind of being a public figure as a writer in Dublin is not that unusual. You know, so there'd be a writer today, like, say, John Banville, who lives in the city. And John is somebody you would, you know, see. There's particular restaurants that you would see him in. It wouldn't be unusual to see him in. Mm-hmm. And John has a sense of himself as a kind of creating a public persona. You know, where he typically in the winter wears a kind of long black coat and a big fedora. You pick him out in the streets. Yeah, that's John Banville. Yeah. So, so there's there's a sense in which the writers and their characters kind of populate the city as this kind of second population, and it in, encourages us to think of. I mean, it encourages writers to think. Yes, Dublin can be a, a setting for you know stories and and poems and so on. But it also encourages the rest of the people to sort of say, "Oh, there's that guy. He's going to write about uh, this place. He yes. his last book was set." You know, on yeah. the street that I walk down when I go to the chemist, whatever particular street they're talking about. But it it's a feeling of this walk that I'm taking, this place that I live, this place where I eat. It can all be elevated into the world of literature by these people that I, I know are walking the same ground that I am. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that is is something that is is, is really important, that it gives people a sense of value of mm. the place in which they live. Mm-hmm. And I think that that plays one of those huge but unquantifiable roles in people's sense of well-being, in their sense of belonging, in all those things that I think so many people felt were suddenly precarious during COVID and when people felt cut off from one another. Yeah. You know, that sense that the place where we live is an important place. Right. And that's something that you find in wider Irish writing as well. You know, again, I keep mentioned the poet Patrick Kavanagh who came from a small farm in County Monaghan. And, you know, he at one point writes about that small farm and, you know, he says, we have lived in important places. The gods make their own importance. You know, and that sense that a, a perfectly ordinary city street or a suburban street can have that kind of significance. I think it's probably significant that you have, you know, writers in Dublin who have written about the suburbs. You know, I get, I mentioned Roddy Doyle, who has basically imagined the whole area around Kilbarrick as a suburb. I mean, the, the poet Ivan Boland, you know, one of our one of our great poets passed away a few years ago. You know, has a whole series of poems, you know, one called Ode to Suburbia. Mm. No magic here. Yet mm. you encroach until the shy countryside, fooled by your plainness, falls, then rises from your bed, changed, schooled forever by your skill. 
your mm-hmm. compromises. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's not many writers write odes to suburbia. Yeah, right. Uh, but once you have the example of someone like Joyce who says, mm-hmm. where you live can be important, is an important place. You make it important. You can carry that with you, right, you right. Carry that with you. And that's, I mean, Boland has, has written quite eloquently how, as a woman, she felt very, you know, excluded from a very male literary tradition that was concentrated in a lot of the pubs in the city center, you know, a very testosterone driven sort of literary culture at times. And particularly when she married and moved to the suburbs and had children. But what she does with that is is she claims it. She says, well, this is my territory and this is important and I can write about it. And she does. Mm. <laughs> this is kind of a funny uh, analogy to go for since uh, given what we're talking about here. But it almost reminds me of the the people who are proudly religious but don't have a fancy church to go to. And they have an epiphany that, no, I can make even a, a humble building into a church. I, the church is a state of mind. It's about the people. It's about the beliefs and the thoughts that are here. It's not so much the, you know, we don't need to have a grand, you know, building with all kinds of ornament in it in order to actually have a church. We can have a church where we are. I think I think that's absolutely right. And I and I think that's actually a really good analogy. Um, and, you know, and somebody like, well, keep going back to Joyce, but Joyce actually uses that language of religion. You know, he uses the term epiphany, which is a, mm-hmm. is a theological term. And Stephen Dedalus has his, his great moment of epiphany just walking out onto the strand, onto the beach at low tide in Dublin um, after walking down an ordinary, you know, Dublin street. Um, so there, that sense that you can have an epiphany anywhere, you can make anywhere a site of epiphany. Mm-hmm. But I think what that does to our own sense of what it is then to be a citizen of the city is quite important because it means we we value where we live we value the you know the personal contacts when we were launching this book dublin a writer city i was fortunate that roddy doyle did did the honors to launch it and he told a story about walking down a street in the city center where the building had been partially demolished and he could hear pigeons behind it and this is what alerted him to the fact that there was nothing behind the facade of the building is that he went by a building and suddenly heard pigeons and what struck me was you don't have that experience unless you're walking around the city unless you have that particularly intimate relationship with the city that that was a real writer's moment Mm. of seeing a metaphor in the building that sounds like pigeons yeah, And, you know, and we were watching kind of this happening in real time as Rodney was telling the story. And I think that makes you think about what a city is for in other terms. That, you know, if Rodney Doyle had been in his car, he wouldn't hurt the pigeons. Right. That the cities that are really habitable are the cities where we can walk, where we can cycle, where we meet other people, where we talk to other people, where we feel part of a community part of a village, if you like. Mm. Well, that transitions nicely into what I was thinking might be my last question is is about the series as a whole. And I don't know mm-hmm. if you were, uh, I know you're editing the series. I don't know if you were in charge of selecting the cities, but the ones that you've chosen all fit into that paradigm that you just mentioned, London, New Orleans, Cambridge, and New York. I'm wondering 
How did you pick the cities? Why those cities? Are there others planned? What went into the thinking behind which cities deserved a book? You know, in yeah, it's been a complicated process. I've been working with my editor in Cambridge, Ray Ryan, on this. Well, the city, first of all, has to have the kind of the literary heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to find the writer as well, that these are you know, mm. they're published by Cambridge University Press, but they are for a wide audience. They, so they, we want somebody who can write for a wider audience, not a strictly academic audience. Mm-hmm. So with New Orleans, we got really lucky with T.R. Johnson, yes. who just knows the city inside out. Yeah, I just uh, talked know. to him a couple of hours ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he I mean, is enthusiastic and well-informed, for sure. Oh, man, yeah, yeah. You know, has his own <laughs> show on a jazz radio station, New Orleans. I mean, how much more New Orleans do you get for that? <laughs> and, and we've been fortunate enough in finding, you know, writers in New York, Lisa Keller, who was, you know, involved with the Encyclopedia of New York, mm. um, so has literally encyclopedic knowledge of the city. I've had some very interesting conversations with her as to what constitutes a neighborhood in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, not an uncontroversial issue. We have Matthew Beaumont writing uh, London. He heads the Center for Urban Studies in London, and he's written, you know, this sort of thing before. A man named Leo Meller, who in Cambridge is small, but it's one of those places that so many writers congregated yes. in and went right. through that has left huge traces. And we're, we have currently have conversation going on with an author about San Francisco, mm, which mm-hmm. of course is a, a very interesting literary scene. Yes, that would be high on my list. Yeah, I mean, we're still looking for the right person for Paris is one mm-hmm. of the obvious ones. I'd love to see somewhere like, you know, Havana or Mexico City or Mumbai, yeah. uh, Cairo. I mean, there Edinburgh is another kind of obvious one, actually. Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires would be, yeah, I mean, in some ways you could almost work your way through the UNESCO City of Literature mm-hmm, list, mm-hmm, yeah. um, you know, which is quite a high bar for entry. And, uh, you know, a- any of the cities there will have that literary culture. But it's a case of finding, I suppose, that the person who can also write about it in that way as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I will look forward to those. And in the meantime, we have the ones that we have, including your book, Dublin, A Writer's City. Chris Morash, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you very much, Jack. It's been a pleasure. And finally today, a little dessert on our menu. John Higgs, author of William Blake versus the World and Love and Let Die, James Bond, The Beatles, and the British Psyche. After one of our conversations, I asked him a special question. Okay, we are joined by John Higgs, uh, author of the new book, William Blake versus the World. I've asked him to come here to help us untangle a question I got from a listener. I actually am planning to answer this question myself. I thought it was such a good question. I had no idea how to approach it. So I'm asking people for their views and asking them to answer it so I can figure out what I'm going to say. The question is, what do you want your last book to be. This is the last book you will ever read. You can choose one already published or describe one that has not yet been written. Yeah, that is a great question, isn't it? That's, that's a superb question. Uh, the one that comes to mind um, for me is a book called The Third Policeman by Flann O'Brien. Are you familiar Ooh. with with Flann O'Brien? I am, but only through reviews and essays. Uh, I have not read any Flann O'Brien. The Third Policeman is the one to go for. It's He's he's an Irish writer um, from the mid-20th century. He's very, very funny. But yeah. the, the Third Policeman is... 
it seems apt for the last book you'll ever read because it tells the story of a uh, a man who commits a terrible sin and is sent to this um purgatory essentially uh-huh. uh, and yet this horrendous purgatory that he's describing I just want to go to. I just want to spend time in there because of the way the characters all engage with it. They're so curious about it. It's so absurd, uh, yeah. but they 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 just they just take it on face value. And in some ways, you're just reading quite a hellish description of a soul being damned. But the, on another level, you know, it's just everything that's just you know great about existence. It's just just the just the uh, how how nuts it all is and he catches that so so brilliantly so yeah. I, I yeah i think you have to if you if you're aware that it's your last book so if you're aware that you maybe you don't have long or something like that uh, the third policeman by flan o'brien would be a good call i think now would you be thinking well this is good because it will help me approach whatever comes next with a good sense of humor and and some equanimity or would you be thinking this is a good reminder that if what's in store for us is permanent oblivion, uh, existence was not all it was cracked up to be either. <laughs> Very much, yeah. I think the first is, is, okay, is where I go with it. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about things that are funny is they're yeah. just self-evidently worthwhile. You know, if something's funny, it's, it gets great. You don't have to question the, the, the existential woe of whether you need to exist, you know, when there's something really silly going on. Yeah, just it's just great. <laughs> uh, I will check that out. Okay, thank you very much, John Higgs, and thank you for joining me on the history of literature. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And that will do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Shinyi Pai for her reading of her poem to Chris. Morash and to John Higgs. And there you go. Two books for your bag on the next trip to Dublin. Chris's book, Dublin, A Writer's City. And John's recommendation, The Third Policeman by Irish writer Flan O'Brien. Do come back for our episode with Shinyi Pai and the Asian American experience as observed and analyzed via modern day artifacts. We'll also talk about her background and her widespread artistic interests. Can we squeeze in a little Dostoevsky this summer? I'd like to think we can, and Mike Palindrome is going to help us with a couple of things. A tribute to Martin Amos, may he rest in peace, and F. Scott Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night. A wild book, vivid and wild and sad, much like the lives of Scott and Zelda themselves. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.